Good afternoon, I'm Brent Holland. Welcome to today's show. This afternoon, we continue with part two of our four-part series with Ted Sorensen. Ted Sorensen was JFK's closest advisor, as well as his speechwriter for over 11 years. Today, the Oval Office. Few have had access to the Oval Office, let alone policy input during a life-and-death crisis. Ted Sorensen had both. In arguably the most pivotal time in the history of mankind, the Cuban Missile Crisis, where all of humanity was on the brink of nuclear annihilation, Ted Sorensen takes a center stage into the Oval Office with President John Kennedy and reveals the thought processes behind the search for a solution to resolve the crisis. The task of drafting a letter to Soviet leader Nikita Khrushchev was levied upon JFK's two most trusted counselors, his brother Bobby Kennedy and his brilliant young wordsmith Ted Sorensen. President said to me and Bobby, all right, you guys go draft it. And we went down to my office, which, as I say, was just a few steps down the hall and sat there. And that was the uh, most difficult letter I've ever had to write in my life. I knew if I wrote the wrong letter, if I antagonized Khrushchev, if he was upset with our ignoring the second letter, who knows? He might just push a button and fire those missiles. This afternoon, Ted Sorensen, part two of four. Right now on Brent Holland. The book is Counselor, A Life at the Edge of History. Our guest today, Ted Sorensen, probably the closest aide to JFK. Ted, I was wondering if we could go in to the Cuban Missile Crisis now. Tuesday, October 16th, 1962. Can you take us through that momentous beginning of that crisis? I certainly can, because it's still as vivid in my mind as if it had happened yesterday. The president called me in that morning, Tuesday, October 16. He told me that to his astonishment and anger, because he had been, we'd all been lied to about it, Khrushchev had a back-channel uh, means of corresponding with Kennedy. He lied about what he was doing in Cuba. The Soviet ambassador, not a bad fellow, Anatoly Dobrynin, called both Bobby and me in on separate occasions to lie to us about what was going on in Cuba. And Kennedy said that these U-2 airplanes that I mentioned a moment ago, 
taking pictures 50,000 feet above Cuba, and then had those pictures developed by the geniuses who analyze and interpret photographs for the CIA, and it showed it was the beginnings, just the beginnings, but unmistakably the beginnings of Soviet missile sites. Missiles that carried nuclear payloads and had a range capable of devastating almost any part of the United States and most parts of the Western Hemisphere, which includes Canada. And he said he was calling a meeting for later that morning. He wasn't calling a meeting of the National Security Council because that particular body is fixed by statute. A lot of people, because of their job, uh, are invited to National Security Council meetings, and Kennedy didn't want all those people. Some of them he didn't think had the kind of judgment and brains that he wanted to give him a recommendation, and some of them he thought uh, couldn't keep a secret all that well, especially if they all brought their deputies with them, which sometimes people do to show how important they are in Washington. And you get a room full of people, and it's almost impossible, A, to get the kind of crisp, precise decision that Kennedy liked to make, and B, to keep a secret. And he did not want everybody in Washington to know about this, because then the Soviets, as he put it, would know that we know, and then they might take some preemptive action. They might use the missiles. Or they might send Khrushchev to the United Nations meeting in New York at that time and have him try a little nuclear blackmail, show pictures of the missiles and say that unless the West backed out of West Berlin, that was the testing place of freedom in those days, that then he would use the missiles. So we had to keep it secret. He didn't want he didn't want a big group. So he was inviting me and Bobby and a couple of others who were not official statutory members of the National Security Council to come to that first meeting later that morning. Unlike those presidents who uh, go off and cut brush on their ranch and leave everything else to uh, their subordinates. He wanted everybody there face-to-face to come up with a decision. And later that morning, we had a meeting, and he told us that he wanted us to present to him every single option he had. Military options, diplomatic options, combined military, diplomatic. What were the pros? What were the cons? And that was the beginning of 13 long, difficult, dangerous days. And it was not until the 22nd of October, six days, six and a half days later, that he was ready to go on national television and let the world know, let the Soviet Union know, let all our allies know exactly what the group that he had assembled around that table, about a dozen of us, what we had decided on and what our decision was, was not the first automatic response, which was bomb those missile sites, get rid of them. No, that would have started a war. No, our 
decision, his decision, was to put the ball in Khrushchev's court, make him decide between uh, annihilation for the world or possible humiliation for him. And that uh, option, that's the second option that we chose, was uh, in effect a blockade of destroyers around Cuba to keep out any further Russian shipments. We didn't call it a blockade because a blockade can be an act of war under international law also. We called it a quarantine, a quarantine against offensive weapons. He wasn't trying to keep medicine or food or gasoline or energy out of Cuba. He wasn't trying to punish the people of Cuba. He just wanted to make sure Khrushchev understood that we were determined to uh, react and resist. Folks, the book counselor, our guest today, Ted Sorensen, all these stories we're talking about today, these true historical facts and stories are in his book, Counselor. You mentioned the quarantine, sir. Who was the person sitting around that table that brought that idea up? To me, it was a stroke of genius. Well, thanks. I don't get any credit for it. I think there were two people who do. Interestingly enough, the uh, head of the CIA at that time, I can assure you that had changed since the Bay of Pigs. That CIA chief was no longer around. But the head of the CIA at that time had been a businessman, and he'd been in the shipping business, and he said, if you put up a blockade, act of war, then under most insurance codes, any ship from Europe traveling across the Caribbean is going to have to pay three or four times as much insurance on that cargo as they usually do, and they won't be very happy about that. And then the legal advisor to the State Department remembered that before World War II, when uh, Nazi Germany uh, was threatening Western Europe, Franklin Roosevelt had proclaimed what he called a uh, quarantine of the aggressor. Basically, it was an embargo, uh, as I recall. I don't recall. I was a baby. But that quarantine was a peaceful act. And later on, the State Department was able to get all of Latin America, the Organization of American States, to join with us in adopting and endorsing that quarantine. And that made it a regional security arrangement, and regional security arrangements are permitted under the United Nations Charter, and Kennedy wanted to abide by international law. Also a very smart move. Folks, our guest today, Ted Sorensen, his book, Counselor, he also has another one out, which I have right here on my desk, and also on my shelf, Kennedy, and that's his biography. Two books, great books, both book covers... You're very welcome, sir. Very well written, too. Well, that goes without saying, as you're one of the greatest speech writers ever. Well, Folks, thank you very much. I'm, uh, can I just boast for one minute? Please do, sir. Last week, I was one of those who uh, was awarded by President Obama the National Humanities Medal in a White House ceremony. He draped that medal around my uh, neck and then said to the audience that I uh, had formerly, before the, my books, I had formerly uh, drafted speeches for President Kennedy, and he said, used up all the good lines for the rest of us. <laughs> That's perfect. 
I want to talk about President Obama, but perhaps just a little bit later. Folks, the books, of course, are readily available chapters and you go right across the country. Uh, com. As always, just click on the book cover. We'll take you to chapters and to go right online where you can order them. Were there those opposed to the quarantine, those that were adamant in going into Cuba? Yes. During that first week of debate and discussion around the cabinet table, there were those who said the quarantine won't accomplish anything. How about that get rid of the missiles? Those missiles are pointed at us. It's a threat. Got to get rid of them. And I still, I still remember the sentence of one of those hawks, as they were later called. Mm-hmm. He said, Mr. President, You've got to go in there and take Cuba away from Castro. And there was a time before the 13 days ended when it began to look as though maybe they were right. The quarantine was proclaimed. The destroyers surrounded Cuba, but work on the missile sites continued. And then one of our U-2 overflight planes was shot down. And by the time on the 12th day, the Saturday, the 27th of October, it surely looked as though war was likely to come. And some of those hawks were saying, I told you so. Hmm. Even uh, Lyndon Johnson, who was vice president at the time, I think this story is in my book. Yes, Uh, sir. He uh, slapped his hand down on the table and he said, well, I don't know. He said, all I know is that when I was a young man walking along a dusty road in Texas, if a rattlesnake reared up his poisonous head, the only answer was to take a stick and chop its head off. Boy, that would have been uh, ominous. That's ominous. A little little cool in the room after he said that. Scary, scary, scary. Just a quick abide. Did JFK have second thoughts about keeping Johnson on as vice president in the upcoming second term, 64? No, he was no, gonna, because he was Kennedy by that time had uh, proclaimed his support of civil rights and had sent to the Congress the most comprehensive civil rights legislative program uh, since uh, the days of slavery. And the South was against the program and against Kennedy, and uh, Kennedy felt that he had to keep Johnson, his token Southerner, so to speak, his hand of friendship, his link to the South, so I think it would have been the same team. Same team, okay. Folks, the book, of course, Counselor, our guest today, Ted Sorensen, probably JFK's closest aide. I urge you all to go and get it. I mean, this is real history. You're listening to The Brent Holland Show. For more information on today's guests, as well as free podcasts and downloads, please go to the www.brenthollandshow.com website www.brenthollandshow.com. Ted, today's generation, for better or for worse, tends to get their history, if you will, from movies. I think of the movie JFK. I think of the movie 13 Days. I want to talk about the movie 13 Days. Do you feel that's... First of all, the movie JFK was total fiction, and I'm amazed how many young people today think it's history. Yeah, that's what I was alluding to. On the other hand, the movie 13 Days, uh, uh, it had a few imaginative changes from history, which we can talk about. But essentially, (laughs) it was accurate. It was based on the documents. It was based on a couple of long conversations that 
that the producers and writers had with me, mm-hmm. they uh, conveyed pretty well the danger we were in and the very cruel, objective leadership uh, provided by John F. Kennedy that steered our little group called the XCOM through those 13 days to a peaceful solution. In that movie, Kenny O'Donnell plays a prominent role. Many people say that really that was you. Do you agree with that? I don't know about many people, but I'm uh, I'm immodest enough to report to you that the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace had the courage to have a showing of that movie in Moscow. And they flew Bob McNamara and me and one of the producers of the movie over for that showing, a press conference after the screening. And Bob McNamara opened the press conference by saying to the producer, that's a fine movie, but you have one fundamental flaw. And the producer swallowed. He said, well, I'm sure there are many. Which one did you have in mind? And Bob McNamara bless his heart, said it wasn't Kenny O'Donnell who brought us all together. It was Ted Sorensen. By that, I assume he means that the speech that I drafted uh, for JFK before he made his decision whether to go with the quarantine or go with the bombing, the group that wanted the quarantine asked me to give him a speech so he would uh, see what the components were, what it would look like. And uh, yes, I did put in that speech eventually uh, all the arguments, all the components of uh, the response including uh, talk about negotiations and uh, recognition of the importance of peace, even an appeal to the people of Cuba to make clear that we were not trying to hurt them. And that did bring all the elements of everybody's thinking around the table uh, together. But I want to stress that it was John F. Kennedy who brought us all together and led the way. Let's talk about that speech. How did you manage to write that speech under such incredible pressure? I mean, this was life or death. Nobody knew the outcome. You're looking ahead, hoping to make the correct decisions to keep the world out of a nuclear holocaust, virtually the death of the world. How did you come to write that speech? Well, that was my job in those days. I was uh, much more involved uh, with Kennedy uh, in terms of formulating his program, policy, messages, speeches, than I was involved in foreign policy until he invited me to participate in the XCOM. So when the, uh, the group favoring, as I did, the quarantine approach over the bombing approach, when they asked me to put a speech together, I went to my office, which wasn't that far away from the cabinet room, and I sat there staring at the blank paper and thinking to myself, well, what can I say? How's the quarantine going to get the... Some of these are the same questions the Hawks were asking. Mm-hmm. How is the quarantine going to get rid of the missiles? How is the quarantine going to diminish the danger? And so on. And uh, finally, I went back to the Dove group and I told them I had these questions and we sat around the table and answered those questions. I went back to my office. By this time, it was late in the evening. I had to cancel a dinner date and one of the grand dames of Washington, at whose uh, home I was expected for dinner, uh, 
when I told her, because nobody knew there was a crisis, I told her I couldn't explain what I was doing, but I just couldn't come for dinner that night. She was nice enough. I know. Isn't that nice? An hour later to send her housekeeper over with a covered plate with a delicious dinner that fortified me through the night. And thank goodness, because I worked through the night on that speech. I took a look at Woodrow Wilson's declaration of war and World War One. Could I just interrupt you for a second? Because sometimes I'm yeah, faced sorry. with decisions like that, not of that magnitude, but I want to know what you ate that night to give you that insight. <laughs> I have no <laughs> recollection, but I remember that it was hot and very tasty. And very tasty. Good evening, my fellow citizens. This government, as promised, has maintained the closest surveillance of the Soviet military buildup on the island of Cuba. Within the past week, unmistakable evidence has established the fact that a series of offensive missile sites is now in preparation on that imprisoned island. The purpose of these bases can be none other than to provide a nuclear strike capability against the Western Hemisphere. To halt this offensive buildup, a strict quarantine on all offensive military equipment under shipment to Cuba is being initiated. All ships of any kind bound for Cuba, from whatever nation or port, will if found to contain cargoes of offensive weapons be turned back. This series of questions, you're actually overlooking a much more difficult draft under much greater pressure. And that was the draft letter to Khrushchev on Saturday, October 27, the ultimate day of the crisis. And uh, that letter uh, had a, I like to think it had a part in uh, in persuading uh, Khrushchev that uh, he had made a reckless gamble, as he called it later, and he pulled his missile. Out. Can we talk about that letter then? Absolutely. Go right ahead. Okay. You had received conflicting letters from Khrushchev. The first letter you received was more or less him under great stress and the CIA said written by himself. The second one looked like it had been not written by him, but by the Politburo. And that was or more the military, uh, Yeah. Almost like You're absolutely right. That first letter came in Friday evening, mm -hmm. October 26th, and yes, it was a bit emotional. It meandered all around. It was full of threats saying, if we do, if the U.S. does anything, the Soviet Union will give us all that and more. If the, uh, And uh, in addition to threats, it was full of denials. We don't have any nuclear missiles in Cuba, he said. Uh, uh, we have some special Yes, but they're not offensive weapons because we put them there for defensive reasons. And if we put them there for defensive reasons, that makes them defensive weapons. But mixed in among the threats and denials were some uh, indications that he wanted to end this dangerous crisis. Also, some hints of a quid pro quo that uh, might enable uh, that to take place. That letter came in Friday night and we were sitting around the cabinet table Saturday discussing how to answer it. We had at least two competing drafts in front of us, one from the State Department, one from our U.S. mission at the United Nations. And then a second letter, as you point out, came in. This one much differ in tone. And the message of that second letter was we're not taking anything out of Cuba unless NATO, which Canada is a member, Mm -hmm. Unless NATO takes 
its missiles out of Turkey. Now, we all knew that the NATO missiles in Turkey were an insult and a particular uh, bone in the throat of Khrushchev and all the people of the Soviet Union when they took vacations on the Black Sea on the uh, Ukrainian side. They could look up from their fun at the beach and see those missiles in Turkey pointed toward them. Had Kennedy and, not ordered those missiles out of yes, Turkey? Yes, and he had been told the previous year that they were old, anachronistic, unreliable, and that what the United States really should do is move that portion of the regional deterrent into polar, modern Polaris nuclear submarines Submarines. Mm -hmm. under the Mediterranean. They were reliable, they were powerful, and best of all, nobody could see them, so they weren't provocative. But as things go in uh, government bureaucracies, that order by Kennedy to remove them had had never been uh, fulfilled. So then we were faced with those two letters, how to answer them, what to do about the fact that the second letter was much tougher than the first. Ted, was there a fear that perhaps a coup had taken place in Moscow? There was concern that the military presidium had, uh, in effect, overruled Khrushchev and put in this second letter with much tougher demands rather than anything in the first that hinted at a peaceful uh, withdrawal. Finally, the wisest man around the table, other than the president, Ambassador Llewellyn Thompson, who had been our ambassador in Moscow previously, who knew Khrushchev, understood him. He said, uh, let's ignore the second letter and answer the first letter. And Bobby Kennedy supported that, and I also did. In fact, I said there are some elements in that first letter that we can uh, respond positively to. And the president said to me and Bobby, all right, you guys go draft it. And we went down to my office, which, as I say, was just a few steps down the hall, and sat there, and that was the... uh, most difficult letter I've ever had to write in my life. I knew if I wrote the wrong letter, if I antagonized Khrushchev, if he was upset with my ignoring or ignoring the second letter, who knows, he might uh, just push a button and fire those missiles. In those days, the cabinet room in the White House was not a reinforced concrete bunker. Today, I'm told that it is. Those days, it wasn't. We knew that all of us sitting around that table could be uh, sitting there in our last day on earth if we didn't solve this problem very, very quickly. So um, the pressure was on me and it was made uh, even more pressure by uh, the president's brother sitting there uh, staring over my shoulder at what I was trying to write. Can you take us into your thought process? You know, words can sometimes have a double meaning and especially if they've got to be translated into Russian. The connotation of those words. How did you? Uh, How did you begin? uh, Well. I'd been a, uh, I wasn't a diplomatic letter writer. I'd never written a diplomatic letter, except for the fact that this back-channel correspondence with Khrushchev had begun a year earlier, and uh, Kennedy usually had me do first drafts of his letters to Khrushchev in that correspondence. Basically, I was a uh, writer of 
speeches for Kennedy and earlier in my life as a member of the debate team in high school and in college. I wrote speeches for myself and sitting there at that table, I remembered uh, some advice from my high school debate teacher, Florence Jenkins, and she said sometimes you do better in a debate by trying to adopt or adapt part of your opponent's uh, case. And so I sat there and I took two or three of those uh, positive elements from Khrushchev's letter the night before, and I reworded them a little bit uh, our way, and I would precede that by the phrase, as we understand your letter, you Uh propose... And then a little later on, as we interpret your letter, you are proposing. And Khrushchev may have wondered, did I really propose that? Because I changed, for example, uh, his positive elements could be described as A, B, C, and I reversed the order, making it C, B, A, to make sure that they did the things we wanted them to do before we did the things he wanted us to do. Maybe a little tricky, but it worked. That's brilliant. That was part two of four of our special series with Ted Sorensen. Next on Brent Holland, part three. When I heard about the first plane crashing into one of the Twin Towers, and I thought, that's a terrible, terrible accident. It happened once before, many years ago, a plane crashed into the Empire State Building. That's right, yes. But when I heard about the second one, I knew it was no accident. Mm. And it was an act of terrorism, and that the United States was going to be uh, a very different country if we started imitating what other countries under siege do, which is usually to crack down on civil liberties, crack down on free speech, crack down on immigration. I want to thank the President John F. Kennedy Library for the use of President Kennedy's speeches. As always, you can reach me at brenthollandshow at gmail.com, brenthollandshow at gmail.com. Thank you all for joining us. I'm Brent Holland. See you next time.